Father, I thank you for this day, the day that you've called us together here corporately to worship you. Yes, we know worship is a lifestyle, but you do ordain that we come together as a group and corporately worship you. And we know, too, that you inhabit the praises of your people. So as we've been beginning worship here already, you've been moving in our hearts, in our minds, in this place, preparing people for whatever it is you want them to receive today. I thank you for that. I pray, come Holy Spirit. Come and and fill me, fill this place, fill these individuals to overflowing with your power, with your compassion, with your love, with your peace, with your understanding. Help us to interpret these scriptures in the way that you would have us interpret them. And Holy Spirit, we give this service to you to do as you want to do this morning. It's your service. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. We're going to start a new series today. I think it's going to end up being four parts. Um, and, and I'm titling it, When Jesus Comes to Dinner. And today we're going to look at the transforming power of worship. The difference that worshiping God can make in our lives. Actually does make in our lives. And we're going to look at a story of an encounter that two different people had with Jesus. A worship encounter. You may think uh, talking about dinner is, is a strange thing for us to talk about here before we even have lunch, but all this came to mind in, in Israel because um, the mealtime is such an important part of their culture there. They do have, unfortunately, some golden arches and some KFCs and that sort of stuff, but still the mealtime is much more than a mealtime is for us. There's no fast food at a mealtime. You sit, dishes are brought out, you, you eat a little bit, you talk, more dishes are brought out, you talk some more, more dishes are brought out, you talk some more. It's about the camaraderie of the group, I guess. It's a time when we get to look into other people's lives and find out what's really happening in their lives. Kind of like when I was growing up and we had dinner at home together at 6 o'clock, you know? Some of you may remember that. Most of you may not. My, it didn't matter what you were doing, you were at home at 6 o'clock for dinner. And one of the questions you were asked was, how's your day going? How was school? How's your day? How, you know, practice that you've had, ball practice or whatever it is. Those were all important things. That's kind of what we're up against in these two um, um, scenarios that we're going to look at. First, this week, the, the lady that 
um, poured oil out on Jesus' feet. And then on the third week, we begin a look at a little, little tiny guy named Zacchaeus. We went by his sycamore tree in Jericho a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> like that's his real sycamore tree. Uh, but a little guy named Zacchaeus that wanted to worship as well. So worship encounters. Both of the people that we're looking at today, though it appears they have nothing in common, do have one thing in common I found as I looked at it. And that one thing is they're both untouchable. Both of them are untouchable. One is untouchable because of her unrighteousness. And the other is untouchable because of his self-righteousness. So we want to see how the story develops, what happens between these two people, and how only one of them ends up being transformed. So let's read the scripture that we'll find in Luke chapter 7. I think I've got verses 36 through 39 on the, on the screen for you, but I'm going to read the whole section that we'll look at next week as well. Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 36. In this church, we believe that the Bible is the infallible Word of God. It's the only standard we have for our faith and for our life. So listen as I read to you from God's Word. Verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And this is, begins the part that you don't have on the screen. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owned money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 pieces of silver and the other 50 pieces of silver. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman. Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loved little. Then Jesus said to her, 
Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So that's the story we're looking at, particularly those first couple of verses. I want us to look at these two people and see what we can discover about the two of them. I told you before, both of them are untouchable. She's untouchable by by holy people, by religious people, because of the nature and scope of her, her sinfulness. But the Pharisee is also untouchable because he's made himself untouchable. He refuses to allow himself to be touched by by the brokenness and the sadness, discomfort of the other people around him. And only one of them is going to be transformed. And you're going to see that it's the one who is the worshiper that gets transformed. So as we start thinking about all of this stuff, who these people were and what they're going to do in this story. First, we have to think about the Pharisee. I think I need to back up a little bit and make sure that we're all on the same page. Jesus had been invited to a dinner at a house of a Pharisee. The Pharisees are the religious leaders of that day. We've run across them in Scripture before. Most of them don't like Jesus. Not at all. And Pharisees are the guys who want to tell everybody else how to live. By the way, we have Pharisees in our churches today, don't we? They're the ones that want to tell you how to live. They want to tell you all the rules you've got to follow. They're the ones that want to condemn other people when they're disobedient. But Pharisees are notorious for their hypocrisy. And we see all throughout the Gospels, all the stories that we read about Jesus, that they're hypocrites. He even calls them that a time or two. So this Pharisee has invited Jesus to his house for dinner. And into this scene, into this dinner scene, comes a woman. Presumably, she was uninvited. And we don't know a lot about her. The Bible doesn't tell us much about her. We don't know what her name is. We don't know how old she is. Is she young? Is she old? Is she teenage? We don't know what she looks like. Is she drop-dead gorgeous? Is she a toothless hag? I mean, we don't know. We don't know where she lives. We don't know her story either. All we know is what the Bible says. She's a woman who lived a sinful life in that town. So this woman is defined by her sinfulness. But she's about to be redefined by the Lord's forgiveness. She doesn't say anything in the story. Not one single word. But she actually says a lot more than any other character in the story through her actions. Most Bible commentators, and you can look at, look at all of them, most Bible commentators would tell you that this woman was a prostitute. She was a harlot. 
They want you to believe that she's a prostitute and that she's rich. Now, the reason that we believe she's rich is because of the gift that she brought, the alabaster jar of perfume. It was worth at least one year's wages, we read elsewhere in the Bible. And we know that to be true. That accounts in John chapter 12. That happens later on in Jesus' ministry. This isn't the same woman. Don't want you to get confused. This other woman brings another alabaster jar of perfume, and she breaks it and pours it out over, over his head. So there's a lot of money at stake here, this gift that this woman is bringing. And some would have us read the story like this. When a prostitute heard that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. But there's a problem with that, isn't there? Simple problem. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what it says. It doesn't give us all the juicy details about her background, does it? And the fact that the Bible doesn't tell us that I think it's how God protects her privacy. When you came to the Lord in an open confession, when you just bared your soul before God and you reckoned all the things that had gone on in your life with Him, He never brought them up again, did He? He didn't write them down for other people to see. They're gone, they're forgotten. And i got to tell you, if you're here today and you're still feeling guilty or condemned, this kind of vague feeling of guilt or condemnation for something that you did in your past that you've already talked to God about, you've told Him that, you, that it happened, and that guilt and con condemnation is still there, it's not coming from God. It's coming from somewhere else entirely. You see, if it's a vague guilt, you can't put your finger on I just feel guilty. I just feel guilty. I shouldn't do what I've, what I've done. But I, I feel so guilty about it. That's not from God. That's the evil one trying to condemn you. But if it's specific, if you know that specific sin that you committed, you can be almost certain that God's convicting you. And he wants you to confess that particular sin to him and go on with life. What could others say of, of, of this woman's sin? What was she guilty of? Well, there's a lot of other ways I guess we could read this. I've, I've already said when a prostitute heard that Jesus was eating at the, house of, uh, at the Pharaoh's house, Pharaoh's, Pharisee's house, we could also read it this way. When the woman who had been the town thief heard that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, you know, maybe that's how she made her money. Maybe she was the town thief. Or when a woman who was the town drunk, I've learned a lot of rich drunks in my life. You probably have too. Or maybe when, when a woman who had been dishonest in her business dealings, now there's a way she could have gotten rich. Maybe that's where the money came from. 
Or we could read it, when a woman who was the town bigot, when a woman who was the town gossip. I mean, there's a lot of ways that we could read this story. The point is, the point I want to make with you is, we don't know. We don't know what her sin was. But just for the sake of argument, let's go with the commentators. <laughs> because I've got all these commentators over here and books on my shelf, and I'm just an old guy, and what do I know? So let's assume that the woman was a prostitute. Let's assume she was a call girl to the rich and famous and powerful. And if that's the case, I've got a question for you. What's a prostitute doing in the dining room of a Pharisee? How did she get there? I mean, think about it. When we take groups to Israel, we try to get them to think outside the box, you know? Put yourself in this situation. What was going on around? How did this lady get into the Pharisee's house? Into his dining room? <laughs> well, the Pharisee knows who she is. It says that in the text. He says, I know what kind of woman this is. Jesus should know what kind of woman she is too. She's got a reputation there in town. Now, Pharisees, as, as the religious leaders at that time, tended to be pretty wealthy people. They'd have a nice home. They'd have servants to help them out when they had an opportunity to entertain. And here's this Pharisee putting on a dinner, and his guest of honor is Jesus. How did this woman make it past the servants in the house if she's got that reputation? How did she make it past the judging eyes of the other people that were eating at the table? Probably Pharisees also. How'd she get in there? I mean, did you ever think about that? I thought about that a lot. How in the world did she get in that house? And it actually makes me wonder if his servants were not so surprised to see her at that house. It makes me wonder if maybe the Pharisee was one of her customers. Maybe the others thought, hey, he's just invited her over here for the evening entertainment. She was walking right through all those people. And not just to the outer room, but to the inner room where the dining room would be. And she's standing behind the guest of honor. It's like that guy that jumped the fence and got into the east room of the White House before they finally caught up with him. How'd she pull that off? Think about her coming into this place. Because if she has not been welcomed there before, then there's an enormous risk that she's running in coming into his house. She didn't come here looking for a customer. 
She didn't come here looking for work as a servant. She came in the, into the house because she wanted to worship. She was a worshiper. And we're about to see some unexpected things that happen in her life. What happened in her life when she worships Jesus? And I think there's some lessons we can learn from this woman, too, about how we worship the Lord, the kind of worship that is acceptable to God, regardless of who we are, regardless of what kind of reputation we have. Did you know that not all worship is acceptable to God? We think, oh, we got up, got dressed, came to church on Sunday morning. He's got to accept our worship. No. No. Afraid not. Go all the way back to Genesis, the story of Cain and Abel, and read that a little bit. You'll see that some offerings are not acceptable. Some worship is not acceptable. So there's some lessons we can learn from this woman. And the first thing I want you to write down is this. She worshipped boldly. She worshipped boldly. I mean, think about that. She could have been rejected by Jesus. She could have been sent away at the door by the servants. She could have been thrown out of that house. You know, she could actually have been stoned to death for defiling the house of a holy man. So she was taking an enormous risk. But she comes in spite of that risk. She came boldly. And she'd probably heard of Jesus. She'd maybe met him. She'd maybe heard him teach. And as I read this a thousand times in the last couple of weeks, I'm thinking, could it be could it just possibly be that she's the woman in John chapter 8? The woman in John chapter 8 says this. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Oops, excuse me, that's, that's the wrong place. Yes, to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts. That's where I wanted to go, was to the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down. Those of you that have seen the movie The Passion know what's going to happen. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. 
the older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there and Jesus straightened up and asked her woman where are they no one has condemned you no one sir she said then neither do I condemn you Jesus declared go now and leave your life of sin I can't help but think this might be that woman this might be that very woman she knew about Jesus she had heard about him scripture tells us that she knew he was there at the Pharisees house and she must know something else about his reputation or, or otherwise she wouldn't even care to, to show up here so why did she come into this guy's house? What, what was it that she was expecting? Was she expecting to be rejected? Or was she hoping to find complete forgiveness? Was she hoping to be able to worship this Jesus? Was she hoping to find some kind of acceptance? I believe she was looking for hope and I believe that she was looking for forgiveness when she came there. And that makes me wonder about all of us. All of us here. Why did you first go into a church? Because your parents drug you in there? Why did you first go to a church? Why did you first encounter Jesus? What were you looking for? What is it that you were hoping for? And what about the people in your life? You're Christ follower, you say. Jesus lives in your heart. Are people coming because they can see the Lord in you? Is that why they're coming? We ask you to build relationships and bring people with you, people that don't attend church anywhere. We're not crazy about getting people from other churches. We would love to have people that are not attending church, and every one of us has neighbors that are that way, right? Build relationships with them. Bring them with you to church. Ask them to hang five. The third week they get to hear me. And then they don't come back anymore. <laughs> Are people coming because they can see the Lord in your life? What are they hoping for? What are they looking for? Are they looking for forgiveness and a second chance? Like they figure you had? Or are they expecting Maybe they'll come to this door back here and be turned away. Just like you would think the Pharisee would have turned this woman away. She didn't care. She worshipped boldly. And the second thing we can learn about her is she worshipped humbly. She worshipped humbly. I can say that she worshipped humbly because the scripture tells us that she stood behind Jesus weeping. And in fact, she wet her his feet with her tears and she dried them with her hair 
Put on your spiritual eyes again. What, what does this look like? What does this look like? Who here? Heather. Yeah, Heather. Come up here just a minute. This is going to be a show and tell. I hadn't planned on it, but it's going to be a show and tell. You have to watch this? Yeah. I don't want to embarrass you. Come right on up here. Well, Jesus is reclining at the table, right? So, let me see if I can get down here. And he had been reclining on his left arm, eating with his right hand. Never eating with his left hand at all. Right hand is for eating. She's standing behind him. Her tears are falling on his feet. And she wipes his feet with her hair. How's she going to do that? Only one way. She gets on her knees. She can't reach him from up there. She's got to go on her knees before him to wipe the tears off of his feet. Thank you. And then she pours perfume on him. And I don't want you to miss this part when we got these spiritual eyes or glasses on to look. Who is Jesus? That's one of the questions we ask in Alpha on the, on the third week we're together. Uh, second week we're together. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of God, right? But he's also... God. Jesus is 100% man, 100% God. And here's this sinful person touching God in the flesh. I get goosebumps thinking about that. And you turn that around. This is God in the flesh, allowing himself to be touched by a sinful woman. Think about the implication of that. That's monumental. That's one of the most profound pictures I can put into my mind right now. So she worshiped boldly, and she worshiped humbly. And the third way she worshiped is this. She worshiped honestly. Now, I can say that she worshiped honestly because she's bringing this alabaster jar of perfume. This jar symbolizes her life. This jar of perfume would have been one of the tools of her trade if she's this prostitute. Everything about her life is represented in this jar. Her sin, her failure, her lifestyle, her work, her past... It's all represented in this gift that she brings to Jesus. There's honesty there. By bringing a jar of perfume, this is in essence her confession. She's saying, Jesus, this is who I am. This is all I've got right here. I'm bringing it all to you. So she worshiped Jesus honestly. 
The Bible says in the fourth chapter of John that true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And that means that nothing is held back. Every bit of us is given. That's how she's worshiping Jesus, boldly, humbly, honestly. And the fourth thing she's doing that we can learn about her worship is she worshiped extravagantly. And I can say extravagantly because that jar of perfume was expensive. We've already talked about that. In John chapter 12, it says a jar of perfume like that is worth a year's wages. I don't know how much money you make in a year. We all probably make different things. But a year's wages is a year's wages for each one of us. It's all we have for a year. And the Bible doesn't say she dabbed a couple little drops on his feet, does it? So she took the jar and she poured it onto his feet. That's an expensive, that's an extravagant gift. The whole house would have been filled with the fragrance of this offering that she was bringing. God doesn't tell you to... He doesn't tell you to clean up your act before you can come and worship Him. You hear that? I mean, this certainly isn't a church where you have to clean up your act before you can come and worship Him. He says, come and worship me, and I'll begin to clean up your act for you. He doesn't expect you to stop misbehaving in order to come and worship Him. He invites you to come and worship Him, and then He begins to change your character. The things that used to be important are not that important anymore. But He does that through His Holy Spirit over a period of time. We call it here, belonging before believing. And we believe that. We've always believed that since before the first day this church was formed. Belonging before believing. We want everyone to come. Doesn't matter what they look like. Doesn't matter what socioeconomic background they have. Doesn't matter what race they are. Doesn't matter what even what theology they have. Come. Come. Feel apart. Feel loved and belong. And maybe, just maybe, as the Holy Spirit begins to move, they'll begin to believe. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 12 that we are to offer ourselves to God as living sacrifices in an act of worship. And then... He transforms us into a new person. That's the basis for my saying, belong before believe. And we don't confess and repent in order that somehow we'll earn forgiveness. That's, that's not the motive behind it. We confess and repent and change our ways because we already have been forgiven. That's why we do it. And you know what? God initiates every bit of it.
And Eric, I'm sorry, we're going to switch up here a little bit. I know I've, 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 I've run Eric crazy today because I had a whole bunch more stuff here and the Holy Spirit said, no, you're going to stop there. And this is what you're supposed to do. So, so we're doing that. And it's not the way we normally do this. And that's okay. You know, that's perfectly okay. It's per- if he wants to do it a different way, we're going to do it a different way. And you're going to like it. <laughs> you're going to love it. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he, and he broke the bread and he said, Friends, this is my body that's broken for you and for you. And after the meal, he took a cup and poured wine in saying, This cup is a new covenant. It's in my blood that's been poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. He said, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you remember my death until I come. What we do here is actually a, an act of worship, isn't it? Jesus poured out everything he had for you and for me. Everything. The scope, the depth of that love is unfathomable. The um, ministry team is going to come up and take their places on either side here. They're going to be there for you to, uh, to talk with. They'd love to pray with you about issues in your life. Jesus is inviting you to come. Just like the woman in this story, he invites us to come and to worship him boldly and humbly and honestly and extravagantly and to pour out our lives in confession through worship. Isn't that what he does? To pour out our lives. I don't know how many of you here are getters and how many of you are givers. I hear those people all the time that said, well, I went to church A and I didn't get anything out of it. I didn't get anything out of the music. I didn't get anything out of the pastor's message. I didn't get anything out of the fellowship we had there. not the way it happens you ought to wake up in the morning and think what can I give what is it that I can give in worship today he wants you to give it all doesn't he pour it all out everything for for him I'm sure that some of you can testify to that in your own faith where you say, you know, my life was a mess, an absolute mess. But I began to worship God 
And he's changed some things in my life. And he continues to change some things. I was, I was lost. But now I'm found. I was blind. But now I see. I just came and surrendered to him in worship. And let him begin to change me. And a Pharisee could say, you can't come in here. Not until you're cleaned up. Not until you're dressed in a three-piece suit. Hair combed. Not until you believe what we believe. We don't want you in here. Go away and when you're ready you can come back, but not now. Belong before you believe. I put down there the, the big idea for today. It's this. God isn't asking you to make promises that you cannot keep. He's asking you to receive a promise that only He can keep. God isn't asking you to make promises that you cannot keep. He's asking you to receive a promise that only He can keep. You come to the Lord. You confess your sins. He forgives your sin, and you move on. It's forgotten. He doesn't bring it up again. He transforms you. He transforms me. He transforms all of us. We can't transform ourselves. It's God that does all that work. And Jesus says, apart from me, you can't do anything. So we come to him today and worship boldly and humbly and honestly and hopefully extravagantly. And we let him begin that transforming work in us. I know many times you, you march up here, you take your communion and drop your offering in the baskets with connect cards and, and you're on your way. But today I'd like to ask you not to do that. There's something in your life right now that you know the Lord's talking to you about. I want you to come up. I want you to come here. I mean, we've got place up here where you can kneel by yourself if you don't want anybody bothering you I'll be down here I'd be happy to talk to you the ministry team Dean and and uh, Jennifer and you know maybe somebody else that can be in the back we, we will be happy to talk to you to pray with you to encourage you you don't need us but there's something there's something wonderful about having a partner pray with you. Use this time right now to get yourself straight, to pour out yourself in worship to the one who died for you, and then go to the table. Come. Come and worship just now.